Turned Up Dead is a true crime podcast. The cases we cover include details of violence, sexual assault, suicide, and homicide. It is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed in this show are those of individuals and not Turned Up Dead. When Detective Superintendent Ray Higgins saw Paul Dyson's image appear on the TV screen, he must have felt somewhat surprised, because he had no idea that Dyson, the fiancé of the woman whose disappearance he was currently investigating, was even going to give the appeal that he was currently watching live on his local news channel. Paul Dyson held onto a handkerchief and sobbed as he described the last time he had seen his fiancée, Joanne, three days earlier on the morning of February 14th, 2005. He told the local news crew, quote, In the morning, because I couldn't get Valentine's Day off, we swapped cards upstairs. I gave her a kiss and a cuddle, got ready for work. She was going to get her head down for another hour or so. Dyson continued, I kissed her goodbye and went to work. That was it until I got home from work and she was not here. I had a quick phone around. If she disappears to her friends or anywhere, she lets me know. End quote. When asked what Joanne meant to him, Dyson, his voice full of emotion, replied, She's the only person I truly love. I want to know where she is. I want her back. The detective was watching as well as listening to the live broadcast closely as the camera zoomed in on Paul Dyson's hands. Because it was at this very moment that he knew he wasn't watching a genuine appeal for help from a concerned partner, but a performance being given by the man who had most likely killed his missing fiancée. I love her to bits, Dyson wept. She is one in a million and was always smiling. I need to know where she is and that she is safe. If someone knows where she is, please let us know. Hello, I'm Fiona, and welcome to Turned Up Dead. The true crime story I'm going to tell you today is of the calculated murder of Joanne Nelson. At the time of her disappearance, Joanne Nelson was 22 years old. She lived in Hull, a city in North Yorkshire in the UK in a house she owned with her 30-year-old fiancé, Paul Dyson. They were about two years into their relationship, and Joanne had hoped that they had honeymoon in Mexico after their wedding. Photographs show the couple smiling, and Joanne's family believed she had met a man who was devoted to her. But what they had seen of Dyson was a facade. What lay beneath was a deceitful and an abusive monster. Shortly before 9pm on Valentine's Day 2005, Paul Dyson called police and reported Joanne as missing. Dyson starts by saying, quote, Hello there, my fiancé, I, I don't know where she is. I just want to report somebody missing. End quote. When asked her name, Dyson answered, quote, It's Joanne Nelson, Joanne Jean Nelson. End quote. And without any prompting, he continued, I'm assuming she's been to work and that, but it's just that the car's parked further up the road and the doors are unlocked. It's... 
I've been trying to get hold of her on the phone since I've got in, but there's no answer. Nobody seems to know hide nor hair of her. When the operator asked if there had been any argument, or if Joanne was depressed, Dyson replied, quote, No, there's nothing like that, no. Um, it's just completely out of character for her. End quote. When the caller had finished, Dyson joined Joanne's family in a door-to-door search for her, or for any information about her whereabouts. Within hours, Detective Superintendent Ray Higgins had been assigned the case. At the couple's home, their Valentine's Day cards were displayed above the fireplace, and the only thing that seemed to be amiss in the house was that Joanne, along with her purse, phone, work clothes, and the ring Dyson had surprised her with for Valentine's Day, wasn't there. Just as Paul Dyson had said, and in line with Joanne being absent from work that day, her car was found parked further up the road, with its doors unlocked. Perhaps the idea that something had happened to Joanne as she was leaving for work had crossed the detective superintendent's mind. However, being the experienced officer he was, and considering that the only sighting of Joanne on the morning of her disappearance had been by Paul Dyson, I wouldn't be surprised if the detective had already began to doubt Dyson's version of events. In the whole episode of Murder Town, which featured Joanne's disappearance, a woman who lived on the couple's street told of her husband opening their door around 8am one morning, which I think must have been February 15th, to find Paul Dyson in tears on their doorstep. Standing alongside Joanne's father, Dyson told his neighbour of her disappearance and asked if they had seen Joanne. News that a young woman in the area had disappeared spread throughout the community, and on February 16th, even more people heard of Joanne Nelson when Dyson gave his emotional TV appeal. Something not heard in the short clips of the appeal online was the following quote, which the independent newspaper reported as a curious choice of words for Dyson to have used. He said, quote, I just pray she is all right. There is no way I would do anything to harm her, and I don't know anyone who had a grudge. End quote. They are a curious choice of words. It seems an odd thing for an innocent person to think of saying during an appeal for help for a missing loved one. Would denying their own involvement be on an innocent person's mind in that situation? My feeling is that they'd be more focused on the missing person rather than their own actions. I do, however, believe a person who had been involved in the partner's disappearance and was being deceptive in an appeal such as this would be very focused on how they present themselves and what they would say. With his tears and words of love for Joanne, Dyson was certainly trying to make people believe he hadn't done anything to harm her. Though interestingly, he wasn't very direct with his words. He chose to say, There is no way I would do anything to harm her. Not, I didn't harm her. I can quite honestly and easily tell you that there's no way I would do anything to harm my sister. But if I had told you that I have never or didn't harm her, I would be lying. As would almost anyone who grew up with siblings. Imagine you forget your anniversary and your partner asks, did you forget our anniversary? You did. And of course you know you did. 
but you're going to try and get away with it by being deceptive. It will be less stressful to say, there's no way I would forget, than it would be to outright lie and convincingly say, I didn't forget. Something that often gives the guilty away is the use of past tenses when referring to someone missing. Dyson did this when he said, she was always smiling. If I had heard Dyson say these things at the time it was broadcast, my suspicions would certainly have been raised. But what I probably wouldn't have noticed during Dyson's appeal performance was what made him the detective superintendent's prime suspect. As the camera focused on Dyson's hand, Detective Higgins noticed two crescent-shaped marks, one on the back of each of Dyson's thumbs. Higgins explains this in the documentary Faking It, Tears of a Crime. Quote, In the interview, there was two marks on his thumbs. I knew from dealing with previous assaults and murders that involved strangulation, the first thing a victim will do is try and pull those hands away from their neck. End quote. Dyson finished his appeal completely unaware that the head of the team of police investigating Joanne's disappearance now strongly suspected him of having seriously harmed Joanne. After the appeal, the major incident team at Humberside Police started to really look into Dyson's background. And, surprise surprise, they found that he had a history of violence against the women he had been in relationships with. A woman who had been Dyson's girlfriend in 1993 told police that Dyson would pace up and down, hit the walls and grab her to stop her leaving during arguments. In the summer of 1999, Dyson proposed to a woman named Jenny after knowing her for only two weeks, and they married a few months later in November. On their wedding night, Jenny discovered who she had really married. The newlyweds had found themselves outside, arguing on the street just hours after exchanging vows. Dyson was known to have a temper, and that night it showed up. He raised his fist, and the next thing Jenny remembered was waking up on her first morning of being married, with an aching face and a cut on her knee that was bad enough to need stitches. This was the first of many public arguments for the couple, but despite this, a couple of weeks short of their one-year wedding anniversary, they had a daughter who they named Chloe. During the course of their marriage, Dyson would do something to Jenny, which he called sleeping her out, and it's quite disturbing. He would put her in a necklock and squeeze until she passed out. Apparently he found this funny. Luckily for Jenny, the marriage wasn't to last and they separated in 2001 and later divorced. It wasn't very long after that, either at the end of 2002 or at the beginning of 2003, that Dyson met and started a relationship with Joanne. He was working as a doorman at the Mint Bar and Club and Joanne was there on a night out with friends. Not long after Joanne disappeared, Dyson started asking around about the possibility of getting a DNA profile from Skin. On the 17th of February, Joanne's parents, Jean and Charlie Nelson, gave a televised plea for any information regarding Joanne's whereabouts. Whereas I couldn't find any video of this, I did find a photograph taken of them during it, and it clearly shows the pain they're in. 
During the plea, Joanne's mum said, quote, I just want to say to Joanne that regardless of what you may think, no one is cross with you and we want you to please come home. End quote. She directly appealed for anyone who had any information about Joanne's disappearance to contact police. Having broken down in tears, Joanne's mum continued, quote, Everyone she has ever known has only positive things to say about her. She is very close to all of her family, and she wouldn't do anything to upset us. If anyone knows where she is, please tell her we love her so much and we want her back. End quote. On the morning of February 18th, an underwater search team began to search a large drainage channel that ran through fields near Joanne and Dyson's home. Nearby wasteland was also searched with helicopters. Detective Superintendent Ray Higgins told the paper, quote, We are very concerned. We are hopeful for a positive outcome, but as the hours and days go by, that is becoming far less likely. End quote. From what I gather must have been later on that day, Dyson's mother, Christine, contacted police and told them that her son had admitted to killing Joanne. She hadn't heard this firsthand from him, but through a friend of his. She reported that this friend had told her that Dyson had confessed to him that he had strangled Joanne to death in their home over an argument about doing the laundry. Dyson had already been interviewed extensively by police, but until this point he had denied any involvement in Joanne's disappearance, keeping up his act of the concerned innocent partner. When police revealed that his own mother had turned him in, Dyson admitted that he had been lying and confessed. Apparently, after he confessed, he cried, quote, Good God, what have I done? End quote. I think this was another performance. He knew damn well what he had done. Paul Dyson was arrested on the night of February 18th, 2005, on suspicion of murder. But rather do what I think is the only anywhere near decent thing that you can do after killing somebody like this, and tell police what he had done with her body. Dyson told police that he couldn't remember where he had left Joanne. The only thing he said he could remember about the place was that it was an area of countryside, which he had got to by passing through a steel gate, which was supported by two wooden posts with netting on either side and some broken bottles on the ground nearby. He remembered that you could only open the gate one way, and he said he had left Joanne's body in a dip further on from that gate. The following day, as Joanne and Dyson's house was forensically examined, leaflets appealing for help to find Joanne were handed out at a local football game, and what would go on to become the largest search Humberside Police had ever undertaken set out in the hope of finding and returning Joanne to her family. On Monday 21st of February, after being granted an extra 36 hours to hold and question Dyson, and without yet finding Joanne's body, the police charged him with her murder. The search continued through awful weather, but sadly, after weeks, the closest thing they had found to Joanne was what police believed to be her handbag. It had been discarded on a railway line about a mile from her and Dyson's home. The places they had been searching 
were spread over a huge area of countryside, and given the little information they had from Dyson, there was still a lot of ground to cover. Desperately needing to narrow down their search, Humberside police turned to forensic ecologist Patricia Wiltshire. Patricia Wiltshire has worked on many high-profile crimes and played a key part in linking Ian Huntley to the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman in 2002. Patricia Wiltshire was given access to mud from the wheels of Joanne's car, Dyson's footwear and a garden fork. From this, she was able to extract a type of ecological DNA of where these items have been. In the mud from the wheels of Joanne's car, Patricia discovered several pollens, including some from yew, an evergreen tree which is rare in the area, and that of western hemlock, birch and hornbeam trees. This, combined with her expertise, enabled her to inform police that the car had driven through an open area and into some woodland. Patricia described it as being quite easy to envisage a location if you have enough trace evidence. She told the Daily Mail, quote, When I got access to his car, footwear and a garden fork, I was able to predict and describe the place, and I said she won't be buried, she'll be in a hollow covered in birch twigs. End quote. Patricia was then able to use botanical maps to find where the species she had discovered grew in close proximity, and this led the search over an hour north to some woods. Armed with this information and the description they had of the gate, Detective Superintendent Ray Higgins and Constable Gadd drove to the area Patricia Wiltshire had identified, looking for the best places for their search teams to start. But when Detective Higgins spotted a steel gate, which was supported by two wooden posts, with netting on either side, they immediately pulled over. The police detectives walked through the gate, which only opened one way, just as Dyson had described. They followed the path leading from the gate through some open grassland, past some heather, and up to a wooded area where Detective Constable Gadd took a path to the right and Detective Higgins continued straight. When Higgins got to a large dip, or hollow, to use Patricia Wiltshire's words, he almost immediately saw something wrapped in bin bags. An attempt had been made to cover it with birch twigs. After 39 days of searching, Joanne had been found. The nearby road was soon blocked off and the area forensically searched. Despite not being formally identified, in all likelihood it was Joanne that they had found, and so her parents were informed that night. The missing person's inquiry was now officially a murder inquiry. The next day the body was confirmed to be Joanne by her family, and later that day a post-mortem examination concluded that she had been manually strangled to death. Joanne's parents released a statement thanking the police and everyone who had been involved in finding Joanne. The coroner's inquest was adjourned until after the police investigation and subsequent criminal proceedings, and the coroner instructed that Joanne's body be released to her family. Joanne's funeral was held at the beginning of April. As her coffin was being carried into the chapel of Hull Crematorium, the song The Sea by Mochiba was played. It's a beautiful song which opens with the lines, 
Flocking to the sea, crowds of people wait for me. More than 200 people had come to say goodbye to Joanne, and her 19-year-old sister, Katie, was brave enough to give a tribute. She said, quote, Anyone who knew Joanne knew she was a wonderful person. She was fun-loving, high on life and bubbly. End quote. Dyson, having already confessed to police, admitted that he had unlawfully killed Joanne and later formally pleaded guilty to manslaughter, but not murder. And to this day, he hasn't given a full account of what happened when he murdered 22-year-old Joanne Nelson. Using evidence gathered by police, the prosecution submitted that Joanne had been losing interest in her relationship with Dyson. I don't know what evidence led them to reach this conclusion, but the couple had been getting into regular arguments about domestic chores, and I'm sure that if Joanne had to keep asking a 30-year-old man to do such basic things around the house he lived in, and doing so resulted in an argument every time, she was probably quickly losing interest in him. Who would want a lifetime of that? In the kitchen they shared, Dyson held his hands around Joanne's neck and strangled her until she died. That would have taken a few minutes, during which Dyson continued to squeeze her neck. When he released his grasp and Joanne lay on the kitchen floor, he made no attempt to try to resuscitate her or call for help. Paul Dyson thought only of himself. A member of staff in a local shop had contacted police after hearing of Joanne's disappearance and seeing Dyson's TV appeal. Dyson had been into the store, and because the majority of the UK is covered by CCTV, he can be seen on their security cameras, buying bin bags, rubber gloves, and disinfectant spray. He then collected a garden fork from his mother's house and returned home. On his way into his house, he stopped and spoke briefly with a neighbour who asked if Joanne was okay. Dyson told the neighbour, quote, Yes, she's fine, end quote. And he mentioned they were talking about getting another cat. Mr. Wosley, prosecuting, said, quote, He appeared his usual self. Back inside his house, he used string to tie together the hands and feet of the lifeless Joanne. He then bundled her body into bin liner bags and secured them with tape. End quote. Dyson then carried Joanne's body to the car and set out to find a place to dispose of it. He first drove about 30 miles west, filled up with petrol, and then headed an hour north until he got to a wooded area in North Yorkshire. He stopped the car in an isolated area near a distinctive metal gate and carried Joanne's body more than 200 metres and down into a dip. He dumped her body in the dip, which provided some natural concealment, and tried to further conceal it with branches. Dyson then drove home, and once back at the house, he took his next calculated step. He got rid of Joanne's work clothes to coincide with his story that he had seen her on Valentine's morning, and they had both left for work. In reality, on Valentine's Day morning, Dyson woke up in his house alone and went to work as he normally would, though he continued to set up his story. Within earshot of a friend, 
Dyson held his phone to his ear and acted as if he was speaking with Joanne. After work that day, Dyson visited the gym. He then returned to his empty house, as he knew he would. If he hadn't killed Joanne the night before, it would be unusual for her not to be home at this time, so Dyson called her phone and left messages asking where she was. He then called her friends and family and asked if any of them had heard from Joanne, which of course they hadn't. Joanne's family were particularly worried because Joanne would always call home every day and her not doing so was highly unusual. With the support of Joanne's family, Dyson then called the police and reported her as missing. On Monday 7th of November, Dyson's trial began, but it was only to last three minutes. Dyson spoke only to confirm his name and enter a changed plea of guilty to murder. This was great news for Joanne's friends and family, some of whom were in the public gallery. They wouldn't have to endure the pain of a trial. Court was adjourned until the next day, when Dyson would be sentenced. Dyson was sentenced to life. Before sentencing him, the judge commented, quote, You lost your temper and throttled Joanne Nelson, a vivacious 22-year-old woman who you profess to love. Having done so, you practised upon her body hideous indignities. You tied her up, put her inside bin liners, bundled her into the boot of a car, and set off on a macabre and calculated journey to find a hiding place. He continued, You left her lying in a ditch. You went on TV and displayed a nauseating hypocrisy. You practised this deception upon Joanne's family, leading them to think there may be some hope when there was none. The grief and torment they went through is scarcely to be imagined. End quote. But in the UK, a life sentence rarely means a lifetime in prison. For what the sentencing judge called an unspeakably evil deed, Dyson was given a minimum term of 16 years. This is about the average time served by those given a life sentence in England and Wales. In a statement after the sentencing, Joanne's family said, quote, We don't feel sorry for ourselves. We feel sorry for Joanne and the life she'll miss out on. We consider ourselves lucky and privileged to be able to call Joanne our daughter and our sister. End quote. In October 2019, it was revealed that Dyson had been moved to an open prison after serving just 14 years. The idea of open prisons is that prisoners who provide a low risk to the public are allowed to leave for specific purposes, such as employment. It's a kind of stepping stone towards complete rehabilitation into society as such. This means for the last two years of his life sentence, Dyson would have been able to see his friends, hug his family and work. Joanne's family, very rightly so, was shocked to hear this. Joanne's sister Katie told the Hull Daily Mail, quote, It is heartbreaking. It's no time at all. To hear it was just sickening and unbelievable. I can't make sense of it. End quote. When Dyson was under consideration for being moved to the open prison, Joanne's family were asked to send in a victim statement. 
About this, Joanne's sister said, my mum couldn't be involved in it because we had to judge everything up and send it over and it clearly has had no impact. We had to think about it. It bore everything up. Paul Dyson will be eligible for parole next year and if the parole board believe he is no longer a risk to the public, he will be released. So what do I think? Please remember, like Jon Snow, I know nothing. I have no background in law or law enforcement, and these are purely my personal thoughts and opinions. One of the things that makes me proud about my country is the focus our prisons have on rehabilitation. However, I don't believe that every prisoner is able to be rehabilitated. From what I've read, I believe that Paul Dyson will forever pose a risk. Maybe not to the general public, but definitely to the women that he pursues relationships with. If released after 16 years in November this year, 2021, Dyson will be 47 years old, and I really don't see him, whose friends said he thought of himself a ladies' man, suddenly turning to priesthood. He may have left school with no qualifications, but Paul Dyson is not a stupid man. From the very moment he killed Joanne, he took steps to try to conceal his crime. And he came up with this heartless plan of action within hours. Dyson is certainly aware that he will only be granted parole if he is believed to have been rehabilitated and shows remorse for his actions. At the time of this recording, he's had 15 years to come up with a plan to convince the parole officers of this. Paul Dyson is a performer. In the live TV appeal that he gave, he knew that he needed to cry, show his love for Joanne, and how upset he was not to know where or how she was. Of course we know now that it was all an act, but he knew exactly what people expected to see from someone innocent. So I believe he knows exactly what he needs to do to get his freedom. Stay out of trouble, complete all the anger management courses and similar programs available, take part in counselling and therapy sessions to show his commitment to being a changed person. I'm sure Dyson would have been putting on the performance of his life. I'm not sure if he has taken part in any courses and therapy sessions during his incarceration, but it's likely that he has, as he was allowed to be moved to an open prison. So in that case, could he actually be rehabilitated? Of course, never having met the man, I don't know, and I can't possibly know if he really has been rehabilitated and won't be a risk to any future partners. But going by what I've read, I very much doubt that he has the characteristics of a person that is even able to be rehabilitated and to show genuine remorse. I mean, if someone can kill a person they supposedly love with their bare hands in such a close personal manner, hide their body and then stand with their family as they report them missing to police, call a TV appeal to try and sell themselves as innocent and then not say where they left her body for 39 days. Can a person who can do all that show genuine remorse? The Hull Daily Mail reported that after seeing Dyson's TV appeal, his ex-wife said, quote, I knew he had done it because it was the same shameful expression I used to see. He was just feeling sorry for himself. I wish I knew if Dyson had any psychological evaluation when he claimed not to remember where he had left Joanne's body, and if he did, what the result of that was. 
but my gut feeling is that he knew exactly where he had left her, and he was hoping that she wouldn't be found. Thankfully this wasn't the case, but if that had happened, Dyson then might have tried to get away with it, by arguing that without a body, Joanne could still be alive. I personally think this is what he was hoping for. Paul Dyson idolised a convicted killer. His own father. In 1966, his father attacked and stabbed a man named John Dickinson to death with a kitchen knife, because Dickinson had had relations with his wife, the woman who would later become Dyson's mother. Both men were 22 years old at the time, and for this, Dyson's father served six years, and was released in 1973. Paul Dyson was born in 1974. Paul Dyson was aware of his father's violent past, but idolised him nonetheless, or perhaps because of it. He grew up idolising a violent man, and then became one himself. Dyson's friend's nickname for him was Psycho, even before he became a killer, and his ex-wife told the Mirror, quote, It's ironic that he's gone on to kill, just like his father. He thought the world of him. End quote. I don't think ironic is the right word, though. I'd go as far as saying that it should have been predictable. Killing Joanne wasn't a one-off incident, during which Paul Dyson snapped or lost control of himself. His actions were controlled, and he has a history of domestic abuse. Killing Joanne was an escalation of the abuse we know he's inflicted on his previous partners. Joanne was a petite woman, and Dyson, who worked as a doorman, had a brown belt in kickboxing, was a regular at the gym, and had violently abused his previous partners, was physically much stronger than her. He knew exactly how much harm he could cause, and what the consequences of strangling Joanne for so long would be. He chose to keep his hands around her neck, and didn't try to save her. Of course no reasonable person would commit murder because they were asked to do the laundry, and neither did Paul Dyson. It wasn't because of laundry, or even anything to do with Joanne specifically. He killed her because he felt threatened in some way. Paul Dyson is a bully, and that's exactly what bullies do. I think that if Dyson hadn't been in a relationship with Joanne, he would have continued his abuse with any other woman he had got into a relationship with. And I believe Dyson will always be a threat to the women that he has relationships with. Joanne Jean Nelson was the daughter of Charlie and Jean, and the older sister to Katie. At the time of her death, Joanne worked in the job centre in Hull, but she had an ambitious outlook on life, and her plans to go much further than that. She had previously been accepted to work as a volunteer in Ghana, and although she hadn't taken that up, she had talked about still wanting to travel the world. Joanne was progressing in her job, and had ambitions for her career, as well as wanting a family of her own in the future. Joanne was very close to her family. She called her parents every day, and her younger sister seemed to really look up to her. During her funeral, the Reverend described Joanne as a talented sportswoman, and mentioned how much she had already achieved in her 22 years. Her friends and family said she was loving and fun-loving, bright and bubbly, and mischievous with a wonderful sense of humour. Joanne's sister said there was no way Joanne would have continued a relationship with Dyson had she known about his abusive past. Since International Women's Day, 
On March 8, 2014, the Domestic Violence Disclosure Scheme has been in place in England and Wales. It's now in place throughout the UK and versions have been taken up in Canada and Australia. The Domestic Violence Disclosure Scheme is commonly known as Claire's Law and was named after Claire Wood, a woman who was killed by her ex-partner, a man who was well known to police for the abuse he had inflicted on previous partners. Claire's Law allows police to disclose someone's history of domestic violence to those at risk from it, such as a current partner, a right to know. It also allows the right to ask. This means that a member of the public can request information about a person's history of abuse. That person can be someone they themselves are in a relationship with, or the partner of a family member or close friend. Had something like this been in place in 2005, it might have helped Joanne. But although Claire's law was brought in with the best intentions, there is the argument that it places responsibility of what to do in a potentially or already abusive situation on the individual at risk from the abuse. This isn't enough and more needs to be done. The effects of domestic abuse reach much further than the people being abused. It affects whole families and communities. This is similar to the effects paedophiles have on families and communities. However, when paedophiles are released from prison in the UK, they are immediately put on a register and the communities they are released into are warned. Laura Richards, expert on domestic abuse and stalking and host of Real Crime Profile, is petitioning for serial and serious domestic abusers and stalkers to be registered in a similar way. And Joanne's sister Katie wants people to be aware that Dyson is out within someone's community. Katie told the Hull Daily Mail, quote, We want to raise awareness and try to help others too. We want his face back in the public domain to remind people what he has done. Joanne isn't going to live the life she was owed, and he could do it again. End quote. I've included a link to the petition to stop serial domestic violence perpetrators and stalkers abusing multiple women, which I encourage you to sign so that fewer people like Paul Dyson can continue to get away with their abuse until it escalates to murder. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turned Up Dead. Remember, if you listen carefully, even the words of liars will tell you the truth. <laughs>